Welcome back to the Medical Liability Minute. It's a podcast where we summarize medical legal threats to doctors in 15 minutes or less so you can continue practicing great medicine with peace of mind. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical Justice, an organization dedicated to protecting doctors from frivolous lawsuits, internet libel, unwarranted demands for refunds, and a host of other medical legal threats. I'm joined today by my co-host, Mike Sakopoulos, who serves as our organization's general counsel. Great to have you here today with us, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion on, on these cases. They're very interesting. So we've got two cases today of, I'll call them foreign bodies, external substances that created injury, one of which was associated with a defense verdict, the doctor winning, the other one where the um, the patient collected $14 million. So those are some pretty sizable. We've got a bookended. We have some bookends. Let's start with the one where the, um, where the doctor prevailed. Here the patient was cutting his grass with a riding lawnmower and it ran into a pole. Um, the impact caused the mower to fall over and a, a bolt struck the patient in his forearm, which was um, a gaping cut. Initially, he did not seek care, but a few hours later, he sent a picture of the wound to his wife, who appropriately <laughs> freaked out and gently suggested he go to the emergency room. So he presents to the ER where he's evaluated by an ER physician and the ER physician was assisted by his nurse. And as part of treating the cut, the doctor needed to clean and sterilize the wound and sitting on the counter was a product called Cavicide. Let me spell that for you. That's C-A-V-I-C-I-D-E. And I've never heard of Cavicide before, but side means kill like homicide, correct? <laughs> okay. That's right. So it turns out Cavicide is an industrial cleaner whose main ingredient is a pesticide used mostly to clean and contaminate hard, non-porous services like a, um, I don't know, like a, um, like a desk um, or a, um, what would you call it, in an emergency room? Um, I'm sure countertops. Countertops, steel. that's the yeah. word I'm looking for, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, cabicide is considered hazardous and not for human use, which of course is why the physician picked up the bottle of cabicide from the counter and sprayed it on the uh, patient's wound. The patient recoiled in, in pain, and as his arm burned, the, the nurse continued to spray the wound with the cabicide, believing they were appropriately cleaning the wound. Some is good, more is better, keep spraying. <laughs> Welcome to America. The, the patient's pain continued as the doctor sutured the wound and, um, and continued, the pain continued after the suturing was finished. After uh, being stitched up, the patient felt the pain was unbearable, uh, so he took the bottle of Cavicide to the nursing station and asked if this was an appropriate sterilizing uh, solution. He learned it was not and demanded that the sutures be removed, the wound reopened, Doctor did reopen the wound, clean the wound again. I'm guessing this time with uh, without cabicide. Yeah. Yes, an appropriate solution, and the doctor charted the event as a mistake. Patient left the hospital um, feeling much better. The physician had given him lidocaine during the resuturing process. When the lidocaine wore off, the patient 
experienced searing pain and presented to the ER at another hospital's burn unit. Um, there was proof of him having, I'm quoting here, hellish burning pain for 48 hours, also residual scarring. Not surprisingly, the patient sued the ER physician and the hospital, <laughs> alleging that under no circumstances should cabicide had been used on a human. Um, also, some critiques about how the cabicide was, was stored, making it possible that it could be inappropriately used on a patient. So the patient's ER expert, because this went to litigation, believed the error represented absolute gross negligence, not ordinary negligence, but gross negligence. And you never even heard of a patient having their wound washed out with cabicide. <laughs> and the hospital admitted, even admitted that the nurse violated the standard of care. The hospital's ER expert on the other side opined that the patient really didn't suffer any new injury of pain, that his symptoms stemmed from the underlying problem, namely the laceration. A second expert explained that cabicide is not toxic and at best would only cause short-term irritation. It is a pesticide, though. It seems like... That seems like you're looking for a long-term solution when you use that. Yeah. So that's the hospital's defense. The doctor's defense was a little bit more nuanced. He denied violating the standard of care, labeling it as an honest mistake. Further argued that the introduction of cabicide actually did not harm the patient. Um, the patient asked for $172,000 in damages, stating he was pursuing a dollar per second for the time that the patient endured intense pain. This is one of the few times I've actually seen an accounting describing why the pain and suffering should be precisely the number that it is. I guess it was from the time that he presented with uh, when mm -hmm. cabicide was injected to the point that he was given um, lidocaine for the uh, for the uh, suturing, the second suturing. Anyway, um, after deliberating um, for four hours at the end of a five-day trial, the jury found in favor of the defense. It found that the doctor was an agent of the hospital, and ultimately they, the jury said neither the nurse nor the doctor were at fault, and that was it. They get to fight another day. I have to say I'm astonished by that, and I'm, I'm a pretty conservative guy and certainly could not be more in the corner of physicians, but the fact that you spray and respray pesticide into a patient um, seems like there might be some compensation due for that. I think the challenge here was just somebody left out cabicide, so that's the first problem. You can see how that could happen in an emergency room. The second problem is knowing what you're putting on or in a patient. Surely these things are labeled, and if they're not labeled, do not use them. I mean, it, it makes no sense to me. Um, we actually got a call from a... Um, from a, a dentist's office not too long ago where he was running multiple rooms and um, went into one room and um, there was a syringe with lidocaine out there ready to be used on uh, the patient and he you know he knows the procedure that he's going to do and as soon as he comes in says hello I'm gonna numb you up starts to numb her up and then the original person who was addressing that room 
stated that the room had actually not been ready, that that was a half-used <laughs> syringe from the prior so patient. The, the prior patient's tray. It, it was, was the prior patient's tray, and it uh, had I, been used. So, I, so what happened? The big problem here, of course, was that nobody knew what the prior patient status was. was. If they're HIV positive or not. Exactly. Uh, HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, so it requires tracking down the first patient, asking their permission to being able to get blood tests. Every state treats this differently. In some states, you do not have to ask. They just have to do it. In other states, you do have to ask. So um, there's no uniform way. Um, I think we do have a list of what states um, allow you to sidestep the process of getting the patient's consent uh, for this. I think I would try to get the patient's consent up front. It's the right thing to do, but the first patient may not want to participate. Meanwhile, the second patient is freaking out, not knowing if the first patient, you know, is HIV positive sure. or whatnot. And if you can't get this information, you start treating prophylactically with um, multiple days of medications. You can see how it goes from bad to worse without much difficulty. How can you avoid this before you inject anything into a patient um, or or wash a patient out, know what it is that you're, know what it is that you've picked up. I mean, this stuff really should be labeled. And if you don't know what cavicide is, the default assumption should be it's not good. The other, um, the other area that I've seen some people have uh, problems with, and I'm specifically thinking about a hospital that brought in uh, some folks to repair an elevator, and the repair people looked around and thought, well, we need to. Uh, put some parts into a solution before we put them back onto the, the elevator. So they grabbed a bucket that detergent had originally come in that was used for cleaning supplies, and they put in their um, uh, their degreaser material into this, this bucket. And as you could imagine, uh, someone mistakes the bucket for actual detergent because that's what had originally been in it. But it, it wasn't a recycle area. These workmen had pulled it out of the recycle area and so they thought it was fair game it was a detergent when it was really uh, a degreaser material caused lots of uh, problems as you might imagine so um, all for recycling but there's definitely ways to to do it this all gets back to making sure things are properly labeled and in the right spots yes and particularly with medic in the era of medications that sound alike I know that there was a case in the not too distant past where um, two medicines sounded very similar to each other um, and the wrong medicine was pulled out and infused into the patient with a horrific outcome. Mm. Um, anyway, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer right here, but let's move on to the second of the two cases, which was associated with a fairly sizable verdict here. The patient was a 55-year-old woman who had a cervical spine fusion, um, and um, the patient was prone on her belly for about five hours during this case while her eyes were taped shut. Purpose was to keep fluids from the surgery from seeping in. Following the surgery, the patient lost her vision, and she alleged that during the surgery, a solution of chloroprep, that's spelled C-H-L-O-R-A-P-R-E-P, -E ran into her eyes, which is known to be a, um, a, a potentially blinding agent, and it did indeed blind her. 
and the patient claimed it was um, the anesthesiologist's responsibility and his team to prevent chloroprep from coming into contact uh, with her eyes. The patient also um, asserted that the eyes were not properly taped uh, and observed during the surgery. I don't know how you would observe it with the patient being prone. Um, and um, and the, the argument was made that it was the neurosurgeon who should have been responsible because he was the one that was using the prep or the chemicals that ultimately seeped into the eyes. Anyway, a $14 million verdict was, uh, was returned. This is a giant, giant number. The fact that this got to trial is actually surprising, but you have multiple defendants here. You have anesthesiologists, you have the hospital, and you have a neurosurgeon, everybody fighting out pointing the finger at someone else. And that's oftentimes what happens when there are multiple uh, parties involved in the litigation. Um, they, they begin pointing fingers and a juror will think, look, I'm not sure which one of these physicians or caregivers made a mistake, but they all seem to agree a mistake was made and somebody needs to pay for that. And so that's the that's the dangerous scenario when you have multiple parties uh, going before the jury. And we've seen this time and again, captain of the ship is going to take the hit here. And the captain of the ship in this situation was the neurosurgeon performing. The, hang the hang on. It was the anesthesiologist that took the, uh, I believe it was the anesthesiologist that took the hit. Was it the neurosurgeon and the anesthesiologist? I think that they all took the hit, didn't they? Um, okay, sorry, we're reviewing the summary of this particular case to protect you know, that the person using chemicals would have been the neurosurgeon. Um, typically, it is, well, here they're describing the anesthesiologist as a defendant. So I'm going to guess anesthesia took the hit. Um, but let's let's back up for a second. Who is responsible for what in the operating room? How How this particular case turned out is more of a cautionary tale of identifying who is responsible. And typically, protection of the eyeballs during a surgical case, unless you're operating on the eyeball, is generally the job of the anesthesiologist. The job of making sure that all of the pressure points are appropriately padded so you don't end up with a decubitus ulcer. Also, the job of the anesthesiologist. Uh, the job of making sure there is no pressure neuropathy during a case, job of the anesthesiologist. Uh, I'm not saying life is fair. I'm just saying so that this is the way it breaks this down. This is the way it breaks down, that anesthesia is in charge. And anesthesia typically is aware of that, meaning that they are going around during a case. If it looks like, if they believe the surgeon's leaning on the patient, um, putting a lot of weight on the patient, they'll either bring it up to the surgeon or gently move the patient uh, or move the uh, surgeon uh, away just to make sure the patient is not injured or harmed. Um, you know, positional neuropathies, um, ophthalmic injuries, these are the types of things that it's in often in the domain of the, of the anesthesiologist. And when the patient is injured, they honestly couldn't care less who's going to write the check. They just want to make sure that a check gets written. That's right. And in this particular case, it was a $14 million verdict. Um, it's a big check. This is a, this is a giant check. For most doctors, they're covered individually for $1 million, $2 million. I don't know how this will play out, whether it will get appealed or whether this it was filed against a corporate entity 
above and beyond an individual physician. So there actually is money uh, to be had here. And and typically when you get to these, the size of this verdict, the the leverage that you have as the defendant that just got bitten is um, that I'm going to appeal this case. And there's a chance by appealing it, you may lose everything. So let's try and negotiate this down to a number that I can live with. It's not going to bankrupt my organization or me personally. Um, it's not a great place to be because if you've lost the underlying original case, you're negotiating. You've lost a lot of leverage. You've lost leverage. You're negotiating from a position of weakness, uh, but it's not as if you do not have options at all. And frequently, the other side wants to see the check. They're looking to be done with this. They're not looking to engage for another four or five years taking this through the Court of Appeals or to the state's Supreme Court. So if there's an opportunity to discount the uncertainty and turn it into a certain number, even if it's a lower number, frequently the answer is yes. I think that that's right. And, and your time frame isn't far off. It could take multiple years after the trial to get back. If it goes up to an appellate court, a year or better later may get sent back for a new trial by the time it gets on the calendar. Uh, that takes another few years and everyone has to hire new experts or, or the same experts, but pay them again for another appearance and trial. It becomes very expensive in years of delay. And so uh, you can imagine uh, patients wanting just to be over with this and arrive at some kind of a compromise, get a check and put it all behind them. If in this case, the anesthesiologist is the one that took the complete hit, I would still make the strongest possible case that the neurosurgeon should double check. This yep. case didn't have to turn out this way. Everybody, it's, it's in everyone's interest to make sure the patient does not have any type of injury afterwards. It's, it can't be a positive experience for the neurosurgeon to just say, hey, look, I may not have to write a check. I mean, that's also got to be a gut-wrenching experience if Horrible. the patient yeah. is blind. So um, why not help your brothers and sisters and just double check, which means make sure the eyes are taped shut, make sure that no fluids can, that are toxic can leak into the eye, make sure that um, all pressure points are appropriately padded, there, there's no likelihood of stretch or compression neuropathy. Um, it's a belt and suspenders approach just to make sure that the patient ends up with a, a good and positive outcome. So those are the take-home points with today's Medical Liability Minute. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions whatsoever about this or other medical legal issues that um, are racking your brain, please email us at info at medicaljustice.com. Again, info at medicaljustice.com. Until we meet again, thanks. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. 
If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.